0: The reading of the Scriptures from Isaiah, chapter 57, verses 14 to 21. I invite your reverent attention and hearing of God's Word, and may we read and hear in faith. And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on, backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him, I will lead him, and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked.
1: But One of the great uh, truths of uh, the Scriptures uh, is that God is not uh, finished uh, with uh, his work in saving that means uh, if you're not a Christian, he's not, he's not finished. Whether he will save or not, of course, uh, falls to his sovereign good pleasure. But we know that he is saving, and therefore there is this marvelous truth that uh, there, is, uh, there is time. And the prophet Isaiah this morning speaks to how we ought to respond to the reality uh, that God is not finished. In verses 14 to 16, uh, he calls upon the nation... Uh, he calls upon us uh, to engage, uh, preparing for the coming of of Christ, uh, preparing for the coming of God, and all that that means. Uh, if you look at the uh, if you look at the text, uh, Isaiah chapter fifty seven, uh, the fourteenth verse, we're uh, reminded in a couple of uh, construction metaphors of uh, ways that 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 we can prepare, uh, build up. Uh, the, the imperative is uh, repeated, build up, prepare the way, remove obstacles. Uh, this, as you know, is, is an allusion to that which uh, begins the second uh, part of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, uh, the prophet calls upon us to prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, John the Baptist, as you know, picks that up in Matthew chapter 3, in light of the coming of Christ. And uh, he cites uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1. Now perhaps there is an echo again of Isaiah 57, verse 14. Uh, prepare the way uh, while there's time. Uh, prepare the way while you can remove obstacles in your life. Uh, build up your, your life in such a way that it might be like a straight path uh, for the Lord to enter. Uh, and perhaps we ought to, on occasion... Uh, give reflection to obstacles that we uh, uh, bring into our lives uh, that might uh, affect uh, our own salvation. Uh, it's a reminder here, of course, that God, as the offended party, is coming. Uh, we, we do many things in preparation for the coming on special occasions of a family member. Uh, perhaps uh, the coming of... Uh, of a high-ranking political person to the city in which we live. Preparation. Well, here's, of course, is the great pinnacle of all time. God is going to come in his Son. It engages uh, this construction metaphor of building up and preparing the way. The theology, of course, of preparation, simply captured for us in the word for repentance, uh, that we get rid of obstacles, Uh, So it speaks to a a change of mind, and the reason that we are to change our mind about God and to get rid of obstacles is detailed for us in the 15th verse, and namely there is a reference to several of uh, of the attributes of God. Uh, We change our minds because of who God is, Uh, and therefore it engages a very high view of God, uh, the majesty of God. For thus says the high and exalted one, the transcendence of God. There's no one higher than God. Uh, He's at the apex of everything. So his transcendence, his majesty, his exaltedness. Uh, He's high and lifted up, solitary in his perfections. His majesty and holiness separates us from him uh, because of his majesty, uh, his holiness. There's an impossible divide. And yet, God is gracious in His eminence. He manifests Himself. Uh, In His grace, He can manifest His presence uh, to His people. Uh, Engages a measure of time. That manifestation occurs over time in our lives. Uh, But He does so. Very interesting, if you look at uh, the attributes of God in light of who He is, who does He come to? To the contrite and lowly of spirit. Uh, He does so to the crushed, uh, to those who are broken, uh, to those who have a powerful sense of lack in their lives, who have an overwhelming sense of their inability to affect salvation. Reminder of it for us, God does not come to the proud. That there must be the realization that he does not need us, profit by us, or for that matter, have to save us at all. Uh, But that he does save, and we know those whom he saves, those who are broken in spirit, those who are crushed, uh, those who have an entire sense of want for the things of God and yet recognize their inability. And lastly, a very important uh, attribute of the power of God latter part of verse 15. He has the ability to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. But literally, the, the verb in the Hebrew text uh, is to make alive. To me, it's much more poignant than the New American Standard has it. I mean, I understand that there is a need for revival. I understand that God comes and he affects revival, but... The concept that God makes alive is much more an expression of His power, that we are dead and He makes us alive, spiritually. Of course, we all live physically, but, uh, the, uh, the vast divide that confronts us from the majesty of God is that we have not life, and that God has the ability to make alive. The other reason it's important to make preparation or to affect repentance uh, in light of who God is and what he can do, not that he has to do it, but he can do it in light of who he is, uh, is because God will not always be angry, verse 16. Uh, The nation of Israel, he was angry at their idolatry that they had a way of serving everything but him. And even in their service from him, they mixed it with their idols. Uh, certainly, uh, epidemic proportions in our own culture. We're an idolatrous nation. Uh, but God is not always going to be angry. It means that timing is everything. Uh, that, uh, that God would turn away from his anger uh, and come and affect salvation. The Uh, Dealing with anger, of course, in the prophecy of the book of Isaiah is that uh, he will send his son to effect peace and restoration. So it's this dramatic event. John the Baptist understands it. Prepare, uh, get ready, make way of the coming of the Lord. He has come uh, to effect peace and restoration. And that is is the sole basis of salvation. Uh, We have nothing to provide, so God does. So again... Uh, reminder that in light of the fact that uh, uh, God will come to effect salvation, uh, we're, we are to repent. Uh, something, I think, uh, in, in that, that it's a continual process where we should be leery and very weary of bringing obstacles into our lives. Uh, and if we are aware of them, we should get rid of them in light of, of God's saving power and the fact that he has already come in his son of the Lord Jesus. Let me give an illustration, perhaps a way to look at preparation. Some of you, I understand, are saying, well, how can dead men prepare? It's a valid question in light of theology of total depravity, but but men can make preparation. Uh, In a home of a friend of mine in New Jersey, uh, someone he knew and called him and wanted to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So he comes into the home of my friend. And uh, they chat for a moment. He says, look, I I want you to do something before we talk any further. I'd like you to read the Gospel of John. And I would like you to take special note of the great I am statements that are found in the Gospel of John. Like, I am the good shepherd. And then, having read that, you, you come back and we'll talk some more. Well, that's an act of preparation. I mean, he could have said, uh, you know, go on the beach and just simply sit there and do nothing. God wants to save you. He will. Uh, because you're dead in sin, you could do nothing and uh, therefore do nothing. Well, again, that's kind of a bizarre treatment, I think, of the theology of repentance and the fact that we are called to make preparation. And one way to prepare is to read the word of God. Well, this colleague of my friend read the Word of God and became a Christian. Well, you and I know because of theology that his preparation didn't save him. The Word of the Lord saved him. The grace of God saved him. The Spirit of God came and opened his heart to respond to the great I Am statements of the Gospel of John. But nonetheless, there's great wisdom. We don't tell someone, well, just do nothing. Nothing you can do. So don't do anything. Again, that belies the great uh, messages of the Scriptures. Uh, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. Hear. Prepare. Make ready. The Lord may come. So, uh, this young man read the Scripture, read the great I Am statements, uh, pondered them in his life, and comes to faith. It's an illustration, I think, of preparation. Illustration, perhaps even of the great doctrinal concept of repentance. In light of who, who God is, dealing with pride, we set it aside because God comes to save the lowly and the brokenhearted. In preparation, repentance uh, acknowledge that, that God uh, is gracious and acts. Doesn't have to act. Doesn't have to do anything. He is under no compulsion to save anybody. Yeah, but God is majestically, gloriously gracious to save those whom he wills. Uh, And again, he doesn't act based on preparation, but he doesn't act absent preparation. And I can tell you emphatically that if you're an idolater and you don't repent, salvation will never happen to you. If you hold on to your idols as you carry them about and you do not let them go, Salvation will not come. The point of this text is to affect preparation, to get rid of obstacles, and to, and to be broken of spirit and to look to the Lord. Uh, at least we know something of the character of the man or the woman that God saves. He does not save the proud. Again, you cannot remain in your idolatry and worship false gods. Well, How does that happen? This, this preparation repentance. Well, again, we know it's the sovereign grace of God. Uh, not all repent, but many do repent. Uh, let's look at a couple of instances in the New Testament where this, this happens. Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 31. Again, we're speaking about preparation or repentance. Well, how does that come about? Uh, Book of Acts, 5th uh, chapter, in the 31st verse is a great expression of how it comes about. It's a preaching of the word of the Lord. Verse 31, He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and savior. So There's a message about Christ as the prince. Christ as savior. And what does God do? He grants repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Early portion of the book of Acts, many Jews came to faith. Many Jews repented, came to know the saving power of Jesus Christ. How did they repent? God gave it to them. Uh, So even in the summons to prepare in an act of repentance, there's this majestic realization that God gives us a gift or will never occur. Uh, Because he's the cause, the ultimate cause of all things. And that even our acts of preparation and repentance, of getting ready for Him as Savior, a product of the sovereign grace of God, that repentance and faith are gifts of God. If He never gave them, no one would ever be saved. And anyone who's ever been saved are the product of the great gifts of faith and repentance. Well, as you know in the book of Acts, not just Jews that were saved, the Gentiles were saved. Acts chapter 11. 18th verse. Context, Cornelius is a Gentile. It's great preaching. Things happen. Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God was gracious to Gentiles. He did for them exactly what he did for uh, the Jews in Acts chapter 5. He gave to them the repentance that leads to life. The scripture summons us to make preparation to get rid of our false gods, uh, to, to deal with our pride. This doesn't mean God has to save us if we do those things. But when he saves, it's because he, he gives to us faith and repentance. And here the Jews were astounded that he's, that he's treating Gentiles in saving faith just as he treated Jews. The Apostle Paul will remind us at some point there is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile, or male or female, or slave or free. Because Christ has erased all of those things. Be careful about preserving them. It will get you in spiritual trouble. And here there's the praise of God for giving repentance in life uh, to, to Gentiles it's uh, just a product even our preparation our repentance is the product of divine action uh, and then we read Isaiah chapter 57 the 18th verse uh, God, God acting I've seen his ways Turn from his anger. So when he sees our ways, what does he see? Ruin, death, destruction. It's like anything we put our hand to, we muck it all up. Uh, so what does God do? Well, he sees our sin, our self-interest, he sees our idolatry, uh, he engages us in repentance and faith. He of course does not see our meritorious acts or qualification to merit his action. And we know that because of what follows. Look at the text. I've seen his ways, but, but. There's a disjunction there. God doesn't take counsel of our ways. He does the radical thing, but I will heal him. In spite of what he sees, he heals. doesn't have to heal. Is under no obligation whatsoever to heal, uh, but he heals. If anyone ever comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's because God has healed the heart, made it whole, granted reconciliation and peace, a product of His graciousness. And notice what follows in spite of what He sees. But I will heal him. But it's more than that, is it not? I will lead him. Restore comfort to him and to his mourners. I will lead him. The word comfort uh, very constituent part of the theology of the book of Isaiah. Remember how Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 begins, Comfort, comfort ye my people. How can we take comfort? We take comfort because God is no longer angry. He comes in his son to affect repentance and salvation. And there's still time for that, by the way, if you're not a Christian. There will not always be time, but there is still time uh, for God to affect uh. Repentance and saving faith, his healing power to lead his people. Something here of the theology of the great exodus. But for us, it's a new exodus. Uh, we're on our way to the heavenly city uh, where our Savior dwells, where he has for us many mansions and a room for us. He will lead us and guide us and heal us uh, and restore comfort. The comfort that God will not always be angry. God will not always reject everyone, that he is still saving, and that there is still time. In each of these verbs, each of these verbs, God is the subject. I will heal, I will lead, I will restore. And of course, we're the object. I will lead him, I will heal him, I will restore him saving power of God, interdicting. Not all men, but many men, affecting salvation. The action, of course, accomplished by God. It's an entirely a divine event of which men are beneficiaries of the grace of God. Beyond God giving repentance that leads to life, affecting our preparation... Uh, salvation is uh, also a work of divine creation. Again, let's look at the text. Isaiah 57, verse 19, creating. It's a verbal adjective, but, but, but the noun from which it comes is, is uh, the same. Pardon me, the verb from which it comes is the same verb as Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. How how was the universe framed? God created it. How did the stars come into being? God created them. How does salvation come into being? God creates it. He speaks it. At every point in the creation account, God speaks. And the divine intent is realized because the divine intent is all powerful and majestic. He creates. It's the same way with salvation. God comes to everything that's in chaos and ruin. Well, how can there be salvation with chaos and ruin? I mean, uh, do you think there's enough time for men to fix it? Uh, uh, will the UN ever ever do its job? Will there ever be world peace? Uh, will we ever come to the end of all these crises uh, that seem to uh, own the world? Well, uh, apart from the work of God, uh, the answer is no. Uh, But God does work, and how does he work? He creates. He speaks, and salvation occurs. God sovereignly created the physical universe, and the same is true of salvation. He creates spiritual life. It's exactly what he does here. Uh, He heals, he leads, he restores, he creates. It's a great reminder of all that God does for his people. I mean, think think simply of the powerful notion of God healing. Uh, just always reminded, this constant bent of, of uh, health care. Great part of our uh, American economies. is health care. Uh, entire industries given to health care. And the struggle, again, how to pay for it. None of that occurs in the healing power of God. He doesn't save us and then send us a bill. He simply creates. it. It's incredible. Uh, Great reminder that we cannot do it to ourselves. Imagine calling Mercy Hospital or St. Anthony or Baptist and and say, look, uh, reserve for me an operating room. Uh, I'm going to come in and... uh, uh, Affect neurosurgery on myself. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Never known anyone to do neurosurgery on themselves. They need an entire team of incredibly qualified people. Case of salvation. God is the only one that is qualified because he can create. That's exactly what he does. He creates life, heals, leads, and comforts. All of the hurts in the world in which we have, and there are certainly many. Why? Because of the fall of Adam. That's why. That's why there's death and ruin. That's why there's diseases and drug epidemics and everything else in our culture. Everything is seemingly unwinding because of the fall of Adam. The Lord has come to change that. He set it in motion, and there's still time. And what he will affect is healing and leading and guiding and bringing his people And the last great exodus to their eternal home begins with his sovereign power of creation. I'm always amazed by the competing theological systems in the church. Make no mistake about it. There is no salvation apart from divine creation. In the case of Genesis 1, it was entirely an inanimate object. It didn't even exist until God spoke. Well, in that sense, your heart is as dead as a rock. God... God has to do what? Plead? Beg? No, he simply speaks. And the heart is opened. We come to faith. Come to the great blessings. Reminder of the power of God. That he creates spiritual life. By the way, the New Testament authors see it exactly this this way. Old Testament truth of God creating. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 verses 17 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, notice in Christ, radical change. God has come in his Son. He is a new creature. That's a theology of creation, a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God. What a great reminder of God interdicting, God imposing his will. These things are from God that we are made the new creation. The grace of God acting, creating. That we owe our faith, we owe our repentance to the fact that God speaks and our hearts respond in his sovereign power. Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 15 For neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. The old distinctions that dominated old covenant life swept away. Gone. But the new creation. God has acted. The time is now. The sun has come. If you're not a Christian, there is still time. Oh, that God would work, uh, break your pride, heal you. But again, it's a theology of creation. By the way, be very careful of maintaining elements of the old creation in light of what God has done in Jesus Christ as a way of taking your eyes off of him and all that he is, uh, all that he does in making us the new creation. So what I mean to say by looking at these New Testament verses is to tell you that the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 57 and verses 18 and 19 have begun in Christ. Prophetic fulfillment has begun in Christ. In that it has begun, I will simply tell you, if you're not a believer, The time is late, but of course it's not yet over. But it is this wonderful reminder for us who are in the Lord that the new creation has started. It's begun. will run its course. The sovereign creator will affect providentially everything that he attends for the church. And the object of the creation, very interesting, in prophecy of Isaiah, uh, is... Uh, literally, the, the Hebrew text is the fruit of the lips. New American Standard translates uh, seemingly the figure of speech by praise of the lips. Uh, but again, uh, it's the creation is the fruit of the lips. And the content is peace. Peace to him as far and peace to him who is near. Uh, so God affects Praise. And He affects reconciliation and peace in the life of the church. It's an acknowledgement of reconciliation affected by the offending, offended, pardon me, and superior party made remarkable by the fact that we had absolutely nothing whatsoever to offer him to affect peace. And so he does it. Reconciliation is a divine act. God makes peace. We can't make peace. So he does. He does it in his son. And that process has begun. It's started. And we respond as effect to cause. God has made peace. I think there's something of an illustration of this figure, of God creating the fruit of the lips in Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Uh, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is... The fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. So coming to faith, one of the responses of faith is we, we are thankful to God. We praise God that he saved us. Uh, we praise God that he didn't send us a bill when he affected our healing, when he made us new, when he took a broken life and begins to set in motion all that will repair and shove us into eternity. And so we praise God, that we're thankful. Here, the fruit of the lips, is the theology of reconciliation. uh, That we are thankful that the war is over, uh, because God has brought peace to him who is far and to him who is near. And then notice, notice says the Lord, I will heal him. Uh, The construct begins in verse 18 with, I will heal. It ends with the same thing, I will heal meaning that we ought to be drawn powerfully to everything in between, that God, uh, God will work and, uh, and, and create peace. Uh, uh, the phrase, uh, all who are far away and all who are near, is an acknowledgment of all men uh, without distinction. Uh, and one of the reasons we know this is because the Apostle Paul alludes to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19. Alludes to this text uh, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, so Paul is going to explain it for us. We might wonder, who's the far and who's the near? Uh, some people might say, well, it's those in Babylon and those who remain in the land. They'll both come together. Uh, I would tell you that you ought to look at scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture. And the apostle Paul is going to tell us ultimately how to understand this radical promise. Because he alludes to this text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So reference to Gentiles coming to faith. Uh, they were far off. They were excluded but now because of Christ and the blood of the Savior been brought near. By abolishing his flesh the enmity which is in the laws of commandments, contained in ordinances, that he himself might make the two into one new man. The word make here is create. That he might create the two. Jew and Gentile, into one new creation, one new man. And the ordinances are swept away because he's the defining reality. Against the theology of sovereign creation, God creates. He creates the two into one new man. No longer are there distinctions. It's the sovereign creative power of God. And Paul is alluding to fulfillment. of Isaiah 57, 19. Those who were far off had now been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Marvelous expression of the grace of God and the gift of the Savior. It refers to full and complete equality of Gentiles in the church. Uh, So Christ uh, creates something new. And he brings irreconcilable parties, Jew and Gentile, together. He makes something new. Creates unity. The two are made one. Therefore, again, the restoration promises of Isaiah fulfilled in the church. The Apostle Paul seals it for us as he alludes to the text. Uh, That the cross reconciles God to us and to one another. Uh, But but there is in Ephesians 2 more than an allusion to Isaiah fifty-seven. Uh, there's the explicit quotation of the text tell us that the restoration promises are now being fulfilled in the church. Look at uh, verses 17 to 18. Now, Paul quotes Isaiah. He alludes to it, then he quotes it. Ephesians 2.17, And he came and preached peace to you were who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access to one Spirit, to the Father. Notice the effect of, of the work of Christ. We have access to God. Heretofore, it's not that way. The high priest entered the Holy of Holies one day a year. He had access, but very limited. And now, Because of Christ, we have total, complete, unrestricted access. It's not through the elements of the old covenant, bulls and goats, circumcision. It is by the blood of Christ we have access, complete access. What a great promise of of the work of Christ affecting our salvation. We get all wrapped around our culture about who has access to power. Uh, who did the president have access to? Maybe he had improper access. And we're all abuzz about all these things. Here's the greatest access in all the world. We have access to the one true living God who creates peace and who makes life and doesn't even send us a bill because it's all done by sovereign grace. And there are no longer any distinctions. The reality of reconciliation is both vertical between us and God and horizontal uh, between us and those uh, uh, in whom we had broken relationships with it 's the product of Christ, the product of the cross, that the restoration promises have begun the time is now, but it will not always be now, but there is still time there 's another illusion here that uh, that I think is uh, radically important uh, to grasp uh, isaiah fifty seven nineteen uh, God creates the fruit of the lips that speak of peace. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. Uh, We have the concept of fruit and peace uh, in this text uh, indicating to me it is an allusion uh, to Isaiah 57 and 19. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Go to your pharmacy and try to buy those. We're in desperate need of them in our culture. The Spirit produces it by His sovereign power. The marvels of the grace of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God does in the church is a remarkable thing. What God does in the heart of a broken sinner is a majestic thing. He simply creates and there's life, and the, the, the spirit fructifies the life in fulfillment of Isaiah 5057, verse 18:19. The context of Galatians 5 is walking by the Spirit in contrast to the desires of the flesh. How do you walk by the Spirit? Well, the Spirit comes into your life, creates the fruit of a life radically changed by God. The Spirit is the enabling power to make the contrast manifest and it's made evident by the fruit of a godly godly life and a godly character in the fruit that he generates. Again, the character's fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. It started, the great event of Isaiah is foretold has begun in the sun, uh, and now being produced in the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, these are the things that the world radically wants, but they wanted absent Christ. Uh, you know, go to your government agency and ask them to, hey, make Make peace in my family. Not going to happen. Go to your county government. Uh, hey, I want to I put in a, a grant for self-control. Will you fund it? No, I'll get self-control. Again, uh, God in his powers reminding us of the marvelous things uh, he does for those uh, that he has saved. The fruit of the Spirit. You want to walk by the Spirit? That's the life of the church. We walk by the Spirit. We don't walk by the flesh. That's the world. We walk by the Spirit. And the Spirit comes in His sovereign power and He produces fruit. Changes our lives. Grace of God. And so there is this notion in the prophecy of Isaiah preparation that you and I know is repentance and that God works that. And beyond repentance, he works healing, he works grace, he works creation. But what he does for many, he does not do for everyone. And this is the reality of of the wicked that the the text uh, closes with in verses 20 to 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. I would be remiss if I did not tell you that the distinction between the two, the righteous and the wicked, has been affected by the creative power of God. Marvelous grace that what He gives to many does not give to all. But the wicked... Isaiah says, are not so. They're like the sea, crashing waves. The simile speaks to instability, restlessness, and inability to come to the truth. Paul says in Second Timothy 3.7, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Because they don't have a divine teacher. So they're always going to learn. They'll never ever get it, ever ever know it. Why? Because they're in desperate need of efficacious teacher who is God alone. And God is that for us in Jesus Christ in the Spirit. I mean, this, this metaphor is picked up by the Apostle Paul, uh, turning back to Ephesians, uh, of the order that, that God in his grace by gifting the church brings into the life of the church. One of my favorite <laughs> reminders of the church Roberts of Robert Rules and Order. You know why I wrote that book? I mean, I used to belong to clubs and we always had Robert's Rules and Order and certain protocols, certain procedures. He wrote it for the church. That staggers me that the church needs Robert's Rules of Order. I will tell you the church needs something else, namely Christ and the Spirit who affect peace between brothers and sisters, between families. Robert's Rules of Order. Go figure that. Uh, what God does is radically different. He doesn't send us a little booklet about how to run our meetings. He gifts the church. And what's the product of his gifting the church? Ephesians 4 verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by crafting us in deceitful scheming. That We live in a world of impeccable counterfeits that come into the church, and God fixes it by gifting uh, uh, men and women for the church so that the uh, crashing waves calm down and there's peace. A uh, little book of Jude has a uh, same allusion to Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. Uh, reminder again of false teachers who will come into the church. Uh, verse 13, Wild waves of the sea. Casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Poignant judgment. Reminder of how we desperately need God. And sometimes there are people that just, they learn something and then they learn something else and they're always wondering. They never can seem to put it together. Uh, God fixes that by gifting men and women. Church, that the waves that once were crashing, great billows, rolling waves, simply are at peace. Power of God. Uh, But the wicked do not have peace because they do not have God. Simply remind you once again, uh, prophecy is being fulfilled. The time is late. But the time is not over if you know not the Savior. Uh, The prophet is describing you. You know not Jesus Christ. You haven't been created as a new creature. Uh, You're not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, People are wicked because they have not God. It's not because they don't have a better rule of morality. They don't have the right rules to live by. Uh, They need some government funding to clean up their backyard. I mean, those are all programs of the world. The problem with the wicked is they do not have the living God. makes our faith radically different from moralism. The whole world is trying to get us to be a better people, to uh, give us better rules to live by. God does it entirely different. He comes and He makes us new. He gives us a spirit to produce the fruit that we need uh, to manifest peace in the life of the church. Uh, I understand our faith is a moral faith, but it's that's all your view of Christianity Uh, You're simply pagan. Uh, God comes uh, not out of moralism. He comes to save by his power to create that which is new. Uh, The wicked do not have God and neither do they prepare uh, and they continue in their lives as if God is irrelevant because they know not God. They have no time for God. And the great acts of God in working reconciliation, both vertically and horizontally, is denied them. As a result, isn't it a reminder that every time we pick up the paper or watch television, it's just the lack of peace and instability, problems always being fermented? It's amazing. God in His grace has it different in the life of the church. And in contrast with the righteous, the wicked will not enter the peace of eternity. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked, no peace. They will live a life of perpetual, unremitting restlessness, absent God. And so, reminder of the prophet Isaiah, there's still time. Uh, Prepare, make ready, get rid of the obstacles. Ask God in his grace, he might come and heal you. Because you know one thing chiefly in all of your heart, that you cannot heal yourself. May God be gracious. Remind you that there is still time. So the prophet process, pardon me, in the end state of salvation is to me astounding. God the Creator, God the Healer, God the Leader, God the Restorer, of peace. God does it. It's all of grace, and God is doing it in the church. What He foretold in Isaiah. We're the beneficiaries. And the great reminder of the gift of grace that God is not finished. There's still time to come to the Savior, to acknowledge Him. And may God revive you, make you alive, before the time runs out. And for all of us who know the Savior, may we have lips full of thanksgiving, full of praise, because of what God has done is doing and will do because of the blood of our Savior, even the Lord Jesus.